Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpoff, and we've got a really fun episode for you today. I have with me, for only the second time ever, one of my residents, Stephen Freiberg, as some of you may remember, did an episode or two when he was a resident, has continued to do some uh, since he graduated, but I now have another one of my residents, a fantastic doctor named Marius Fassbinder. We are lucky to have him as a resident. He's got a wealth of experience, first in Germany before coming over here, and then, of course, here as a resident. And Marius has taken a particular interest in the topic of hydroethyl starches. And so we are going to talk about that today. This episode is going to be featured at anesthesiologynews.com, as many of the episodes are. You can go over there and check it out. And while you're there, you can check out a lot of the other great news and content that they have. It's a great site, as people will know from checking it out in the past. And I encourage you to go over there, check out the ACRAC stuff that they have, and uh, see what else they have to offer. Marius, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on the show. It's awesome to be here. So, Marius, let me ask you, this is a really interesting topic. How did you become interested in it? All right. So um, I got interested in this topic because um, when I trained in Germany, we used um, hydroethyl, uh, hydroxyethyl starches quite extensively. And uh, when I came here and started my training in the U.S., I noticed that almost no one uses it here. And uh, talking to colleagues whenever I mention um, that we used to use them in, in Europe, and to some extent we still do, um, people looked at me and, and, and were like, are you crazy? Um, the evidence is so clear, um, you shouldn't use them. And uh, that motivated me to, to come here and talk a little bit about it because there's a little more to know about colloids in general and hydroxyethyl starch. The evidence is not that clear. Um, and while it's not, not my intention to promote the clinical use of, of hydroxyethyl starches, um, I think it's very, very good to know the, the differences and, and the little things you need to look out for when you interpret those studies. Absolutely. That sounds great. So let's start very basically. Let me ask you, when you think of colloids, what is that? What is a colloid? So when we use a colloid in, in clinical practice and in anesthesia, um, we think about um, a molecule of um, homogeneous non-crystalline substance that ideally binds water within the intravascular system. So it's a molecule with uh, water-binding properties. And we uh, differentiate between uh, different kinds of colloids that we use in, in clinical practice. And on the one side, we have the natural colloids. And on the other side, we have uh, synthetic colloids. Um, part of the, the natural occurring colloids we use are uh, albumin. Uh, we have it in a 5% concentration here, um, also at a, at a higher concentration, up to 25%, and FFPs. Um, and when we talk about uh, the synthetic colloids, we think about hydroxyethyl starches, which I will refer to as starch and uh, gelatins and dextrins. Great. All right. So that's what falls under the category of colloids. And then why do we care? What do we use them for? So why do we use colloids? Just like I mentioned a minute ago, we think um, colloids are more effective as a, a volume expander, uh, meaning we use it to stabilize cardiac preload in certain clinical settings. Um, well, whether that is true or not is probably um, 
context sensitive. Um, so the amount of, of color that actually, actually stays within the intravascular system uh, depends on the clinical situation we use it in. Um, it depends on the patient and even within the patient and it depends on which organ um, this colloid is, is going to. And um, when I think about fluid or um, colloid, uh, crystalloid or colloid therapy, um, I make a certain differentiation within my head. When I look at a patient that comes into the OR, I differentiate between fluid therapy and volume therapy. So um, what do I mean by that? When I uh, talk about fluid therapy, um, I think about losses that occur naturally, um, such as sweating, evaporation, insensible losses, urine, all the things that you and I lose on a daily basis, and we need to replace it with a fluid. And when I talk about volume therapy, I refer to um, intravascular volume losses that we see in surgery. So let's say you have um, a leg amputation and you're losing volume from your intravascular system. And it is, it is very helpful in clinical practice to make that differentiation because you would never want to replace a fluid loss with a colloid. Um, you would want to treat that with maintenance crystalloid therapy. And uh, the role of colloids um, in anesthesia mostly comes into play when we talk about volume losses, so losses from your intravascular system. Um, and Marius, when you say you would never want to treat a fluid loss with uh, colloid, why is that? So why is that? Um, because... The whole idea behind the colloid is to treat intravascular volume in anesthesia. There are exceptions in medicine where you use um, albumin for different kinds of therapies, but for this talk, we're going to focus on, on anesthesia practice mostly. And um, it doesn't make sense from a theoretical standpoint of view to replace a fluid loss with a colloid because you're really just losing fluids. Um, salt-based solutions from your body that do not need a colloid replacement. And uh, this is very important because you can encounter clinical situations where uh, one might think, oh, a colloid is a good solution, but it's really not. And one of, one of uh, the good examples if, are if you're hypovolemic from dehydration, so um, you're uh, walking through the desert and people find you after two days and you're now hypotensive. You do not want to treat that with a colloid because what you really need is a salt-based solution and uh, replace the things that you've lost over those two days. And I, I love that. I think that's exactly right, is that when we're thinking about this, we want to think about replacing what's been lost. So if all you've lost is essentially a crystalloid solution, then replacing that with crystalloid makes sense. If you've lost what is essentially a colloid or blood product type solution, then replacing it with a colloid makes more sense. Um, so I like that distinction quite a lot. All right. So when we so we we are going to distinguish between those two and then you know what is the advantage if we're losing volume to using a colloid to treat it so the theoretical advantage and whether it is a true clinical advantage or not will need to be discussed throughout this talk but the theoretical advantage is that 
you stabilize your cardiac preload, meaning you increase the amount of fluid that is coming back to your heart so you can pump it out again. Um, and why is that? Um, because we think for a colloid, there exists a structure that holds this colloid within the intravascular volume to a bigger extent than a crystalloid. Now, we thought the ratio was 5 to 1. Let's say you have an isoncotic colloid, such as um, 130-hydroxyethyl starch or 5% albumin, and um, you, uh, you look at a crystalloid, an isotonic crystalloid, um, not all of that crystalloid stays within your intravascular system. Now, we thought the portion of the colloid that stays intravascular is much bigger than we now know it actually is. Um, we're more talking about a uh, 1 to 2, 1 to 3 ratio. But as I mentioned before, that very much depends on the clinical situation you find yourself in. Okay. So we know that only a portion of the crystalloid is going to stay and then only a portion of the colloid as well? Or how much of a colloid is going to stay? So in the ideal patient, and there's no such thing as the ideal patient, um, that comes into the OR and loses about half a liter of blood from his intravascular system, and we give this patient a 5% uh, albumin solution, um, we think that almost 100% of that solution stays within the intravascular system. Now, we know from experimental studies that it really much uh, it, it really depends on uh, on the pre-existing volume status the patient is in. If the patient is normal volemic to start with, and we give them a liter of albumin, uh, not all of that stays within the intravascular system because there's a structure in place, and um, more and more evidence uh, shows that um, the structure called glycocalyx is being damaged when you overload a patient. Um, but let, let's, let's try to use a clinical example to, to give you an idea. Um, one very common practice uh, we do um, is we place an epidural in a laboring patient. And uh, once we place the epidural, um, we give a medication, and that medication makes uh, the patient hypotensive because the local anesthetics we inject cause peripheral vasodilation below the level of the block. Um, now, why is the patient uh, hypotensive? The patient is hypotensive because um, their uh, blood vessels dilate and uh, blood is lost in the periphery. And if we give this patient a crystalloid solution, um, not all of it stays within the intravascular system. And what we really need is more blood coming back to the heart so we can stabilize preload and maintain uh, normal tension. Um, if you give the same patient a colloid solution after you inject it, um, more of that solution stays within the intravascular system and you, you're able to maintain uh, blood pressure to a bigger extent. But none of those two actually treat the problem. The, the real problem uh, we have here is peripheral vasodilation, as we also see um, going into anesthesia uh, as we start a case um, when you give your anesthetic and, and people become hypotensive. That's, that's a um, relative volume depletion, but the volume is still there. 
and uh, it's it's uh, very very um, uh, controversial whether you should treat that with crystalloids or colloids because that that's not the solution to the problem. The solution to the problem is using a vasopressor. I couldn't agree more. Uh, absolutely. So. Um, so we want to be aware of uh, when it's appropriate to use any kind of volume, uh, and you mentioned vasodilation caused by anesthesia really, I think, should be treated with a vasopressor, as you've said. Uh, but let's talk about um, the glycocalyx. You mentioned, obviously, we could really dive quite deep into the glycocalyx, but do you want to say a few more words about what it is and, and why we care about it? So that's a great question, because I think the glycocalyx is a very important structure we need uh, to look out for. Uh, in anesthesia. Um, very simply put, the glycocalyx is a, is a layer um, that covers the luminal surface of endothelial cells. And its role seems to be to prevent proteins from the intravascular space to freely go into the interstitium, into the extracellular space um, that surrounds the blood vessels. And um, many, many things affect that structure. Um, we know that hypervolemia, as mentioned, causes damage to the glycocalyx, so it cannot hold back um, larger molecules that uh, you give, and uh, the result is edema. And um, sepsis can do it. Um, systemic uh, inflammation can do it as we see in SIRS, um, many, many clinical th scenarios can, can cause injury. Another one, another prominent one is um, ischemic and reperfusion injury. We know that um, it also causes damage to this structure, and um, it becomes problematic in, in clinical practice. Um, so uh, when you look at a septic patient and um, you think uh, of, this, of this classical patient in septic shock, um, post-fluid resuscitation, they have um, edema throughout their body. And uh, one of the reasons um, they have so much edema is because uh, fluid is leaking out of their intravascular system. Right. And so we've lost this uh, glycocalyx or damaged it. And so part of what's happening is that the, the vessels can no longer hold the volume in. Now, if you have damage to the glycocalyx, as you mentioned earlier, colloids may not stay in as much as they would normally stay in intravascularly either, right? Exactly. So um, the whole idea of, of your colloid, colloid solution becomes, um, becomes problematic because um, you no longer have a structure in place that helps prevent those albumin or starch molecules from leaving the intravascular space. While the glycocalyx is intact, uh, molecules bigger than maybe 70 kilodalton have a hard time leaving the intravascular space in most organs. Um, but when this structure is no longer present, um, uh, we, we have a hard time. And again, keep in mind that hypervolemia can also cause damage to this structure. So if, if you start uh, with a normal volemic patient, um, giving them a, a large uh, colloid or crystalloid bolus may cause damage. Right, absolutely. So Marius, before we move on to talking about starches specifically, is there anything you want to say about kind of colloids in general before we move on? Yes. Um, I would add one more thing um, to make it very clear uh, to the listeners. 
that um, the volume effect of colloids is actually something that is really hard to measure because um, some of the studies uh, were uh, done in, in healthy volunteers or in animal models where you start at a uh, normal intravascular volume level. And uh, the way they used to measure the volume effect of these, um, of these medications uh, was assessed by dilution of hematocrit or hemoglobin. Now, it's a little more complicated um, than that um, because we now know that this is very much inaccurate. Um, so there's a couple of studies out there that use uh, certain tracer methods um, to look at the volume effect, and they seem to be a little more accurate. So the idea is you inject the tracer, and then you give the medication, you give the colloid, and then you inject another tracer and look uh, at how much tracer is left within your intravascular volume. But it's everything but clear um, how much actually stays intravascular. And this is even more confounded by the clinical situation you find yourself in, whether you're in the ICU treating a septic patient or you in the OR, you're treating a trauma patient, it, it really depends on where you start off and, and, and uh, where you end up. And it's, it's, it's not a, an answer that you can say for sure, oh, 100% of this solution stays intravascular or 30%. It's, it's really hard to estimate that. Great. Well, that's important to know. And as you said, the example of, for example, a patient who has hemorrhaged out half their blood volume versus a patient who had an epidural placed and is now vasodilated, those are two patients who both may be hypotensive but may respond very differently to volume and may have a different percentage of any given volume, whether crystalloid or colloid, stay intravascular. Exactly. All right. Let's talk about starches, your kind of area of interest, what got you interested in doing this podcast. Let's start with the basic question. What is a hydroethyl starch? So a hydroethyl starch is a either potato-based or maize-based polymer of amylopectin, um, a starch, uh, meaning you have hundreds of glucose rings in your starch molecule, and uh, they make it up and they come in different sizes and uh, different molar substitutions, different weight. Um, so I think it's, it's useful to talk about that for a second. Great. Let's do um, it. Just, uh, just so the listeners understand that starch doesn't mean starch. There's different kinds of starches. And um, the, the packages are usually labeled with three numbers. The first number is the percentage of the concentration um, so let, let's give you a classic example. You have a 6%-130-0.4 starch solution. So what does that mean? That means that you have 6% of starch in that solution. So if you have one liter, that contains about 60 gram of starch molecules. Okay. And then uh, we move on to the um, second number, uh, in this case 130, and that refers to the mean molecular weight. Now, you don't need to know uh, the very detail of that, but um, the pharmacodynamic is influenced by the mean molecular weight. If it's a heavy starch, the older starches were heavier starches that were like 450 or 200, and they remain within the body for a longer period of time than your uh, 130 starch. And uh, the third number, um, the 0.4, 
uh, refers to the molar substitution of uh, the glucose rings. So what do I mean by that? I mean um, your starch molecule consists of a number of glucose rings, and some of them are substituted with hydroxyethyl groups on position 2 and 6 of, of, of your glucose ring. And that um, influences uh, also the pharmacodynamic of that, uh, of that uh, very solution, and it also classifies the different types of starch. So the older starches had a molar substitution ratio of 0.7 and 0.5. They're commonly referred to as heta starch or penta starch. And uh, the newer starch solutions have a molar substitution ratio of 0.4, and they're referred to as tetrastarches. And um, studying for the boards, I came across uh, questions um, addressing that. Um, for example, with the older starches, uh, the penta starch or uh, the heta starch, um, you have a higher risk of causing coagulopathy than the new ones. And uh, they also, again, remain in your system much longer than the new ones, which may explain some of the side effects that we see with those older ones. Yeah, so I think that's really key. And you mentioned with that second number, uh, the mean molecular weight that uh, if very small molecules, uh, you know, less than 40 to 70 kilodaltons, right, are going to be very rapidly excreted by the kidneys. Presumably much larger molecules are going to be a little harder to excrete by the kidneys. They're going to hang around longer. Exactly. And this is very important. And um, the second number, the 130, uh, using our example, refers to the mean molecular weight. So uh, it means that that solution contains... Um, a number of different size starch molecules. Mm -hmm. um, the smaller ones are being excreted uh, quite quickly um, uh, with the kidneys, whereas the larger ones stay uh, within your intravascular volume a little longer. Um, the cutoff value here is somewhere in between um, 60 and 70 kilodalton, so 130 is 130 kilodalton. Mm -hmm. um, and you also have to know that if you start off with a molecule that is, let's say, 300 kilodalton, um, and it's being cut into three molecules of 100 kilodalton, that influences your colloid osmotic pressure that is being exerted by the starch itself. So um, the in vitro colloid osmotic pressure is different than the one you see in the body in vivo. Absolutely. And you, you mentioned that there's different starches, and that also you know may influence, and we may get to this a little later, but uh, some of the effects that have been seen or some of the concerns that have been expressed have to do with the effect on the kidneys, and that may be influenced by both the size and the molar substitution of the specific starch that we're talking about. It may be. That's the belief. Yes. Great. So you mentioned 6% earlier. Is that kind of a more or less um, isotonic starch? So isotonic uh, refers more to the uh, chrysaloid content of, uh, of the colloids, and uh, this is maybe another important thing to know when you hang a colloid solution um, and you use that starch, it is dispersed in a, in a crystalloid solution. So every single um, starch solution that you use, um, and this is also true for albumin solutions, is dispersed in a crystalloid solution. So that, that is what is affecting your isotonicity. Mm -hmm. And um, what is affecting your colloid osmotic pressure is more the percentage and uh, the number of decent-sized molecules 
that you give. Um, and uh, we're uh, usually looking at a um, colloid uh, osmotic pressure of uh, um, 25 to 30 um, uh, with uh, the common starch solutions and with the 5% albumin solution. Great. So you mentioned before that if we have a 6% solution uh, and it's a liter of hydroethyl starch, that's going to have about 60 grams of the polymer. So what does that compare to when you're thinking about other, uh, whether albumin or crystalloid, what would you think of it as, as kind of similar to? So the similar solution uh, would be uh, 5% albumin. Those have about the same colloid osmotic pressure. Mm-hmm. They're uh, called iso-oncotic. Um, meaning they have the same or a similar um, colloid osmotic pressure than we find in, in healthy plasma. And uh, you can um, oppose that to hyper-oncotic uh, colloid solutions such as 10% starch solutions or a 25% albumin solution. And I would be very, very careful with using hyper-oncotic colloid solutions because all you're trying to achieve is... Um, your baseline level, your baseline physiology. And uh, if you find yourself during surgery and now you um, introduce a surgical stimulus that causes um, dysregulation and now you add a hyper-oncotic solution to that that may even draw um, water from your extracellular space into the intravascular uh, system, you're uh, causing even more disturbance and it's probably not a smart idea. There is a role for 25% albumin solution, mm-hmm. mostly in medicine and uh, maybe a selective uh, liver surgery procedures. But uh, in common anesthesia practice, there's probably a, a very small role for hyper-oncotic solutions. Yeah, I would agree with that. Great. So when you are thinking about maximum doses, uh, is that important? Are there maximum doses for starches? Yes, there are. And... Um, This raises a very, very important point because um, I like to look at crystalloids and colloid solutions in general as medications. And medications uh, come with an indication, a contraindication, a a certain dose, a dose range, and uh, scenarios where you can use them or not. And for um, the newer starch solutions, the maximum dose was uh, 50 ml uh, per kg and day. Um, it's not so clear for albumin because it may depend on your clinical scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as you don't cause hypervolemia um, or a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis from the saline that the albumin is suspended in, um, there's uh, less limitations to the maximum dose. But uh, starches, and this is very important, um, come with a maximum dose. And once you exceed that dose, you see a sharp increase in side effects. Great. And that's a perfect segue to my next question, which is, uh, what are the side effects of hydroethyl starches? What are we concerned about there? So a lot of the trials that looked at the use of hydroxyethyl starches, uh, both in animals and humans, um, found signs of kidney injury uh, with the use of starch. Um, Whether this is true, whether this is a true mechanism uh, from the starch or it's a hyperviscosity phenomenon is somewhat unclear, but it is clear that in ICU patients, you see that once you exceed a certain dose 
and it becomes worse. Um, another side effect is uh, coagulopathy, especially the older starches, the pentostarch and the hexastarch and the heta starches. Um, they can bind uh, von Willebrand factor or factor eight and other um, other factors that are important in coagulation, and they can cause coagulopathy. Now we thought that for tetrastarches this is not so much of a problem, but in septic patient it it really is, and uh, we should try to stay away from those um, in 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 this patient population. And another. Um, Another thing that is uh, being caused by starches is pruritus, and this is independent of, of what kind of starch you use, and it's also a dose-dependent effect. The more starch you use, the more you see that your uh, uh, patients become itchy. And then another thing is it can cause an anaphylactoid reaction, and uh, the incidence is about 0.05%, uh, which is uh, significantly less than... Um, dextrins, for example. And so uh, there can be some accumulation, right, especially of um, the larger molecular weight starches? Yes. They, uh, they are found to accumulate in the tissue. Um, one way of uh, the metabolism of starches involves that uh, some of the molecules are being taken up by the so-called reticular endothelial system, and they're being stored in, in cells and everything and they can uh, linger around for a long, long time. So um, a starch is never a good idea for a long-term treatment. Great. And then what about the renal dysfunction? Does it matter about the low molecular weight uh, starches versus higher molecular weight starches? So um, it matters. Um, it appears that we see less um, kidney injury in the lower molecular weight starches uh, with the lower molar substitution. Um, and one important thing to know is I would never use a starch in a patient that has any sort of pre-existing kidney injury. Um, even with the newer ones, even if you can, if you say that, oh, the evidence is not as clear, I would not in no circumstance use this on a patient that has kidney injury. So that's a contraindication. Are there other contraindications, you think, for using hydroethyl starches? I think there is. Um, I think coagulopathy is a contraindication. So if you're far advanced in your surgery and um, your patient becomes choreopathic, and that's a contraindication. Hyperhydration is a contraindication. Um, previous allergic reactions to starches is probably a contraindication. I mentioned before dehydration would be a contraindication, and uh, sepsis, in my opinion, is, is a contraindication to starch use. Um, now, people will argue with that, but I would not use a starch solution in a septic patient. And why is that? Um, because um, in a septic patient, we mentioned earlier, they uh, very much have lost the structure that we think plays an important role to hold your colloid within the intravascular system, meaning the glycocalyx. And we know from multiple studies that in septic and uh, severe inflammatory syndromes, such as a burn patient, um, you have capillary leakage, and uh, there's really no uh, rationale for using uh, a colloid in a patient that leaks it from its intravascular system. So I would, I would not use it in a septic patient. Great. So people are going to be wondering, you know, why would I ever use these, right? I mean, even without these contraindications, there's these potential side effects. There's some potential for accumulation, coagulopathy, 
for you know a very rare rate of an anaphylactoid reaction for some renal dysfunction. So I'm sure listeners are going to say, you know, why would I want to use them? Is the answer because in some places it may be cheaper than than albumin, or are there is there another reason? So this is a this is a very great question. Um, I think it, it really gets to the bottom of, of this. Um, if I can use five percent albumin versus a starch solution. I would always opt for the 5% albumin, just based on some of the theoretical um, um, implications and, and thoughts. Um, but um, albumin comes from uh, pooled plasma. It needs a donor. It comes from humans. So it's, it's limited. The amount of albumin is limited that we can use. And um, the other thing is it's more expensive than a starch, which plays a role for um, a lot of other places. In Europe, a starch solution is significantly cheaper than albumin. And then you have clinical settings where you don't have access to blood products um, or vasopressor therapy, um, such as uh, remote places or um, um, low- and middle-income countries that um, do not have as efficient blood donation systems in place and uh, they really can only use a synthetic colloid. So um, it may play an important role in those settings. Um, and um, at this point, I want to mention a, a very important thing. So w we, we discussed extensively how you would use a, um, a colloid uh, in a patient that loses uh, their intravascular volume. Now, if you think about a patient that comes in with a massive trauma, uh, let's say multiple gunshots to the abdomen and the chest, and they're uh, hypovolemic because they're bleeding out, um, I would not use a colloid or a crystalloid. Um, if, if your patient is bleeding out, you need to use blood products. Mm -hmm. okay? um, you, you really uh, don't want to waste time um, loading the patient with crystalloid or colloid solution what you really need to do in that scenario is you need to give blood. Um, and only if you have no availability to blood products, you, you can think in this scenario about using a colloid solution. It may save you. We don't know. Great. All right. So that's a good reason to think about it if you're in those scenarios. Are there studies that people you'd recommend people take a look at if they want to get more information on this? What, what do you um, recommend? So... There's a bunch of studies out there that looked at um, the use of starch solutions, uh, primarily in the ICU setting. And uh, you have to know before we talk about these studies that there was a um, scientific scandal in Germany in 2008 where uh, one of the researchers who studied starches extensively and found a lot of positive effects on starches um, uh, was uh, found to be fraudulent. So they had to retract a lot of study this author was involved with. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to address any of the studies that this author was involved with. I'm going to talk mainly about the big ICU trials. And um, there's a bunch of them out there. Um, the earliest one from 2008 is the VICEP trial that uh, looked at um, the use of uh, pentastarches in, um, in septic patients. Then there's um, the 6S trial. It's a Scandinavian trial from 2012 that looked at um, the use of starches in septic patients. And there's the CHESS trial, um, also around 2012, 2013, that looked at um, 
over 7,000 patients um, and uh, found that uh, it causes kidney injury and increases the need for RRT. So I'm going to summarize those three trials that we looked at because all of them show evidence for um, kidney injury in mm-hmm. septic patient, increased need um, for renal replacement therapy, and um, even increased mortality after 90 days in, in some scenarios. Um, and when you look at those studies, um, you really want to look at them a little more closely, and you start to realize that they have some some flaws in it. Um, one of them being they were done and conducted in septic patients. Mm-hmm. Septic patients, to start with, as we mentioned, most likely don't have a structure to hold that colloid intravascularly. So you lose your volume effect. Um, that was your intention to use it. And um, the other thing is that um, those studies mostly um, had a delay in recruitment of their patients, um, meaning that the randomization occurred after a good while, uh, 12 to 24 hours after uh, patients have been admitted um, to the ICU with, uh, with sepsis. And if you listen to last week's podcast with Pam Lipset, um, you realize that the really one of the most important things in the therapy of sepsis is the initial resuscitation. So given fluids early. Um, so there's a suspicion that probably a good amount of those patients included in those studies um, were already resuscitated by the time they were randomized. And uh, as I mentioned before, there's really no role of um, colloids, um, especially starches, in the maintenance therapy of your ICU patient. It's really just for an initial resuscitation. The other thing um, that um, these studies were criticized for is uh, some of the studies used extraordinary high doses of starches, and they come with a dose limitation. Um, and the one thing we learned from these studies was that um, the more you give, the more uh, your uh, kidney injury risk increases. So that's a takeaway point, but um, really important not to use uh, a... a high volume of the starch for maintenance therapy. Another thing that uh, some of these studies were criticized for is that they included patients with uh, kidney injury. And um, it is really important to take away from this, do not give a starch solution to a patient that has pre-existing kidney injury. And then uh, another thing um, these studies were looking at was they were comparing um, starches to uh, normal saline and normal saline by itself can cause kidney injury. We now know, at the time, it wasn't that clear, uh, but now we know that normal saline actually causes kidney injury by itself. Um, overall, these studies were large studies, and um, they uh, were published in, in New England Journal and JAMA. And they're overall good studies, but they have some inconsistencies that are really important to keep in mind when you interpret the data of these studies. Okay, I think that's really important, and people can take a look. We'll post them uh, with the show notes. Um, are there other trials uh, that you think would be important for people to take a look at? So there there have been uh, another three trials that uh, showed somewhat positive results 
um, with uh, the use of starch in ICU patients. Um, those were named the CRYSTAL trial, um, the CHRISMAS trial, and the first trial. Uh, I believe the first trial was uh, not done in, in, in the ICU patients, but in the perioperative setting. Um, those studies have also been criticized because, again, they compared to uh, they compared uh, lower molecular weight starches, newer starches, to normal saline, which by itself can cause kidney injury. Um, some uh, of the studies were um, criticized for um, only selective um, data um, data publication, so they only pub- published some of their primary and secondary outcomes, and left others unmentioned. And uh, th- those are some of the shortcomings. And the, the CRYSTAL trial looked at all different kinds of colloid solutions. But interesting to know is that in the CRYSTAL trial, um, the subset of people that had the best results was the, the group treated with starches. One important thing about the last three, three trials um, is what, why did they show... Um, better results, and maybe one of the reasons is because they were used in the initial phase of resuscitation. Um, but again, I do not want to recommend the use of starches in ICU patients. Uh, I think um, there's still a significant risk involved with it. I would just not use them, especially in the U.S. and in Europe where we have better colloids available. So, Maris, you said that those latter three trials um, showed some positive results. By that, do you mean they didn't show harm or they actually showed some benefit? Tell us a little more about that. So that's, that's another great question because the data uh, where uh, starches show a benefit are scarce. Um, some of these trials um, showed um, benefits uh, mostly in their secondary outcomes, so they were not powered for that. Um, but overall, the data is weak. Um, the, the, the CRYSTAL trial showed um, um, a, a decrease in 90-day mortality, less ventilatory days, um, and less overall solution used, um, less, less volume lo- used in these patients. But it's, it's not very convincing. And importantly, in ICU patients, um, I, 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 I'm not expected to, to find very convincing data on its use based on, on the implications of the glycocalyx. So, Marius, you know, it sounds like there's still a lot of controversy. There's some studies that maybe, though not definitively, showed maybe some benefit. Other older studies which showed that there were some, was some harm. Um, we've even said here, you've said, ah, you know, I think if you had other options, then it might be better to do it. Do we need a more definitive study? And if so, what would we look for? What kind of study would you design if you wanted to really answer these these questions definitively? Great question. Um, I'll take a step, step back and um, um, share a story here um, because I was talking uh, to one of our great um, ICU attendings the other day, and one thing he mentioned is, all right, we looked at thousands of patients and we don't see a benefit. So there probably isn't a big difference. So should we even... You know, should we even um, care so much about it? Because um, if there was a big benefit or a big, big harm, we would know about it by now definitively. I think it's it's a little more tricky to, and than this because, um, one, um, and I'm going to talk about that in a second, we need to design a study where you 
take a theoretical uh, rational in, in, into use, um, meaning the glycocalyx, and in a clinical setting where you expect the colloid to uh, improve your uh, preload. And second, we use um, crystalloid and colloid solutions in so many patients. It's estimated that over the course of a year, um, about 230, 240 million people undergo surgery, and all of them, or almost all of them, get some sort of crystalloid or colloid solution. So I think it's very important that even if there is a small difference, we find it, because um, it would have large implications on, on the people. And I don't expect any of the solutions, whether it's crystalloid or colloid, to make a huge difference. I think the number needed to treat is exceedingly high, uh, which can only be justified by the fact that we treat so many patients with that medication. So if I were to uh, design a study um, on the use of um, starch, if, I, if it was my intention to prove its benefit, I would look at the initial resuscitation phase in the OR, meaning, again, coming back to the example I used earlier today, um, you have a large tumor debulking surgery or um, amputation or extensive orthopedic surgeries where you encounter steady but slow volume losses. Um, at some point, you will need to transfuse these, these patients. Uh, you will need to give blood products. But in the meantime, before you reach a certain hemoglobin level, um, you want to stabilize their cardiac preload without giving them too much crystalloid uh, because, again, it would cause more edema is the rationale behind it. So I would look at this kind of patient population. And there's two studies on the way in Europe. Uh, one of the, is the Phoenix study. Uh, the other one is the Tetis study. Um, they're going to look, look at this, and I would keep looking out for these studies because um, if you don't hear from them, it may be an indicator that they couldn't find a big benefit of starches. Um, one of the downsides of these studies is they're industry-funded. Also, some of the studies we talked in the ICU setting are industry-funded, so you always got to be careful. Um, and I highly recommend if you're interested in whatever clinical topic and you're looking out for studies, go on to uh, clinicaltrials.gov and look for those studies and look uh, what are they looking for uh, in their primary, secondary outcome, and then later on what is actually being reported when these studies get published. So those are two trials that I think uh, it's worth looking out for. Um, we, we're excited to see the results of these trials. And then um, if, if you don't see a benefit at some point, you may also want to think, should we really still use starches? We may not want to. Um, so um, I think, I think uh, we should wait for the results of these studies. Um, and I think we should keep the things in mind we, we discussed here. Uh, before we ban those solutions altogether. I was going to ask you, Marius, are they being banned? Are they being restricted? Yes, they are. Um, the um, European uh, uh, Pharmacovigilance Risk Assessment Committee uh, of the EMA, the, the European equivalent of the FDA, is currently pushing to, to ban those solutions. I think at this point in time, we do not have the evidence um, to, to ban them for good. Uh, I think we should limit its use. Um, interesting to know why did they push forward in banning the fluids. 
um, they were um, incentivized by a study that uh, looked at current practice of uh, prescription of starch solutions and found that they're still being prescribed in patients with kidney injury and septic patients. So they figured, okay, we may as well just ban them altogether. But I don't think it's smart at this point. I don't think uh, we're there yet. Um, there was an expert committee involved that actually recommended against the ban. Um, so it's currently being revisited. Um, if I can give you an example, for example, if you ban starches, you may also want to think about banning normal saline because uh. it causes a lot of problematic effects. But um, I think there's still a role in certain clinical settings for normal saline, so I, I don't think we should ban either one of those two, not yep. at this point in time. Gotcha. And there are, of course, uh, also some downsides to increasing the use of crystalloid, especially if it's normal saline. Theoretically, yes, there is. Um, it's it's very hard to study that. Um, people looked at abdominal surgeries and a large amount of crystalloids, which can damage um, a lot of important structures in the vascular system. So th- there may be downsides from using too much crystalloid, and there may there may be a downside from banning starches, not having uh, albumin available, and now infusing uh, four instead of two liters of crystalloids. Um, so there they may be harm with that. Great. All right. Marius, this has been great. Anything that we haven't covered that you think we should hit before we sign off? I think uh, we, we covered a lot. I think uh, this can be hard to digest, and sometimes uh, I need to listen to your podcast multiple times before I get the picture. Um, I want to thank at this point some of the faculty here at Johns Hopkins that helped me in preparation with this talk. Um, but I think at this point is a good summary of the situation we find ourselves in. Great. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Jed. All right. That was great. I love that Marius took the time to research this and then to come do an episode. Um, if you have comments, go to the website, com, where you can leave comments that everyone can learn from. You can also see the references. You can see all our other episodes. And you can join the mailing list if you'd like. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And if you're interested in supporting the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, we are really grateful. It makes a big difference. If you prefer to make donations when and how you would like, you can also go to paypal.me slash ACRAC. That's paypal.me slash A-C-C-R-A-C. And you can make a donation anytime you feel like it and as much as you'd like. Any little bit is, of course, greatly appreciated. Thank you so much to those of you who are already patrons or have already made donations. And, of course, to Brian Park for the outlines he's made for some of the episodes. And that is going to be it for today. Thanks so much for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Marius Fastbinder, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.